You know, Hawaii had been in line for hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, federal dollars for a project to reduce the flooding risk to Waikiki and surrounding communities. But fearing a rush and not getting it right, we are at a critical rethinking, uh, take two of the Alawai Canal project. Starting tomorrow, the public is being asked to weigh in on possible impacts to neighborhoods in the area. Here to talk about it is Eric Merriam, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers plan formulator for the Alawai Flood Risk Management Study. The Alawai Flood Risk Management Project began back in 1999. The feasibility report associated with that initial work resulted in a recommendation, a recommended plan that was authorized for design and construction in, in 2018. After it was authorized for construction, we did additional analysis through uh, what we call an engineering documentation report in 2020. What that determined was that some modifications to the authorized project were needed for it to function, and it was to the 100, you know, the 100-year flood level or the 1% annual chance exceedance event. And, and what that report determined was that those modifications that were needed were not going to be justified from an economic perspective. And so there wasn't going to be federal interest and involvement anymore with that plan. So rather than completely um, cut funding for this project, understanding the need for the watershed in, in the state of Hawaii, the Army Corps of Engineers decided to, to re-engage through what we call a general, general reevaluation study. And basically what it allows us to do is to take a completely fresh look at the problem and reevaluate all of the potential opportunities. Um, so the last round, as you had mentioned, we were kind of constrained to looking at the 100-year flood with kind of that last engineering documentation portion of the study. And, and now that constraint is taken off of us. And so we can look at, you know, all flood events and, and try to find that, that optimal solution that basically maximizes the resilience of the communities within the watershed. This is an opportunity then really to reevaluate things just with climate change and more community input about what's possible. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, and so, um, you know, there were lessons learned from the previous iterations of the study. And, and so we really tried to engage the community in a much stronger way in this iteration of the study. The Army Corps of Engineers back in November, um, as part of the study, had our first kickoff meeting with the public where we really were seeking input into, again, taking a fresh look. What are the problems in the watershed as, as people perceive them and see them and experience them? Um, and then what are the opportunities? Um, and so at that time, you know, we, we got all the information and we laid out a, a plan for public engagement moving forward. So we had the initial November meeting and we had an, another meeting um, set for June originally, June 2022, where we laid out kind of what we call our final array of alternatives. So what are the potential opportunities or, you know, what are the potential alternatives that we that we think are, are potentially viable to kind of compare among and select, select among to, for that kind of final plan? Um, and, and at that time, you know, the community said, hey, that's, that's a lot of time, right, between November and June. And at that time, you're going to have the final array of alternatives. We would love some additional touch points. We've heard that feedback, and we're trying to incorporate that feedback. And so, you know, we actually did um, create a, another series of, of workshops that we're going to engage the community in, and the first of which is this Friday. And so um, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it is a fresh start, a new look. Um, being the optimist, it, it provides the community additional input into the into ways that we can address this problem. So the watershed that you're looking at tomorrow, it's Makiki and Palolo? So for the Makiki and Palolo streams, you know, we really wanted to target these. They, they do represent kind of the smallest streams in terms of their contributions to flow to the canal. And so we wanted to kind of highlight them together and first because, you know, addressing issues in those two streams first will allow us to take a look then at kind of Mano the Manoa later, um, which does contribute more water to the canal as well. 
So within Makiki, it is a very dense urban area. And, and so, you know, what the team has really tried to do and what we'll be talking about in the first meeting is to leverage existing existing green space. So what, what are the opportunities that exist kind of within that, that dense urban area? Um, so, for example, some community parks. Can we maintain them as community parks but also have them kind of be facilities where we can store some water? Um, we're also looking at, at leveraging or, or updating the potential to update existing stormwater infrastructure. Again, understanding that it's a dense urban area, there is infrastructure that already exists. Can we leverage what exists to, to better improve flows through the area? Those are some big considerations for us. And ultimately, those, those actions together or individually, um, and again, those aren't the only things we're considering, um, but, but really the goal is, is to, to get water out of that watershed before it inundates that, that dense urban area. So can we, can we either store it or, or move it out before it becomes a problem? Yeah, I, um, I believe uh, some time ago, you know, we experienced, uh, I don't know, a kind of rain bomb up in the Tantalus area and Makiki Street's flooded and it was very unexpected. But it's, it's that capacity issue, right? I mean, climate change uh, is affecting our weather patterns and what you might think of flooding, let's say, from the sea is not the sea. It's it's Mauka. It's up up, up above the mountains. You're, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, I, there is an important distinction to make. You know, I, I know a lot of the flooding associated with that December event was due to, to inadequate drainage or, you know, basically water couldn't get out of the system fast enough. And so in terms of interior drainage and that type of infrastructure, um, that is mostly out of the authority that we have. But you're absolutely right in terms of climate change. You know, those types of events are going to continue happening more and more, and the potential magnitude and frequency of those events is also going to increase as we move through. And so understanding that, it really highlights the need, right? Now is the time for this type of study before we kind of reach that point. And I know then you'll be focusing on uh, Manoa, the Alawai Canal. You know, I mean, the whole idea is you've got to protect those neighborhoods and communities around the Alawai, uh, which includes Waikiki. That's absolutely correct. And so um, since the initial public meetings, what the team has been doing and with the input of the community is developing what we call a, a range of management measures or specific actions that we can take in the watersheds to address the flooding problems. Um, and, and so we've been, we've been developing measures and we have over 200 measures. And, and now we're screening those measures, meaning we're, we're looking and trying to conduct the analyses needed to determine which ones are the most viable and which ones will move forward. And this represents another key point in time to get community input, right? So they, all the, you know, everybody in the public who's interested can see what analyses we're doing, what decisions are being made, and, they, and it's another opportunity for them to provide input to that at this point as well. You know, here it is already. We're in 2022, and we're not going to see anything happen until years down the road, whether it's a eight-foot-high wall or basins, you know, to be to be constructed that, that it just kicks a can down the road that we, you know, that maybe we should hurry up and do something. Normally, these types of studies are, the Army Corps asks us to complete them in three years. Um, they have expedited us uh, on this study and, and so have asked us to complete it in two years, and, and we're currently on schedule to do that. You know, we, the team, and the Army Corps understand that it is a priority, and, and we are expediting it as much as we can to to help the communities feel the support by the federal government and, and, you know, help them feel like they're moving forward with the resiliency as, as we kind of continue into climate change, as we had discussed. So the basin is large, right? It, it incorporates the Palolo, the Manoa, the Makiki, um, and then all of those communities that, it, you know, that are further down um, in, in the lower watershed, like Kapahulu, Macaulay, Mo'ili'ili, in those areas, as well as Waikiki. And so, so it does incorporate a lot of communities that have, you know, historically felt these flooding impacts. 
That was Eric Merriam, who's with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He was talking about a series of meetings that kicks off tomorrow, April 1st. The focus is the flood risk of the Alawai Canal to surrounding communities, including Waikiki. Tomorrow's session focuses on Palolo and Mikiki. Other sessions will look at Manoa and the Alawai Canal as well. You can look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Arts, Homa Nights, offering entertainment, art experiences, beverages, and bites on Friday and Saturday evenings. Hours and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. And joining us for today's Reality Check is Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Cassie Ordonio. She's a story about a rare move by University of Hawaii faculty against a powerful lawmaker. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, apparently there was a, a vote <laughs> that was taken by uh, faculty members against uh, Senate uh, Senator Donna Bercato Kim. Tell us about that. Uh, so I've been tipped about the story around February that there was going to be a vote a vote of no confidence at first against Donna Mercado Kim because of the several measures she's introduced, basically taking aim at faculty tenure and also UH's autonomy or the right to govern themselves. So the vote started in the beginning of March and what well, we're already at the end of March. So all of the faculty um, senates have voted across the 10 campuses and the vote was 7 to 10. Um where seven out of 10 campuses actually voted, instead of a no vote confidence, it was actually uh, more of a resolution approval of condemnation. So not approving of Donna Kim's um, legislative actions on the university. Yeah, I mean, uh, Kim has a reputation of being tough uh, and she uh, has taken the University of Hawaii management you know, to task uh, over a number of things over the years. So um, I don't know, but I, I know that uh, some folks are probably concerned that maybe this could backfire for the university. Some some faculty, um, especially the three that didn't approve their resolution, some of them did say that it could backfire just because um, when they were planning on the no vote confidence, that's kind of more normally um, internal as opposed to like a no vote confidence to the dean. But I think this um, tenure bill was the one that really was the camel, the straw that broke the camel's back for them. And what they really want is to have her removed and ha- to have someone else with kind of more of a fair voice. But for Donna Kim, she does pride herself into um, challenging government officials. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you had a story uh, earlier about the no confidence vote against uh, the dean of engineering, uh, Brendan mm-hmm. Morioka. Morioka. Yeah, that's right. Um, it is too early to tell, especially with what um, Senate President Ron Kochi said, that he will not um, plan to remove Donna Kim and also kind of praising her in a sense and voicing his support for her. But um, who knows? Some faculty say that they're going to um, send a letter to him asking for her removal by the end of session. And uh, you did uh, talk to Kim. Uh, so what was her response? Kim basically said, you know, this is nothing new for her. Um, she wanted to, and as for the tenure bill, she said that it would only affect certain newly hired faculties, such as extension agents or specialists and librarians. But um, as I recall, she told me that when she was chair of, um, back then it was the Senate 
tourism committee, um, there was also uh, tourism folks who were also trying to get her removed from that committee. So for her, it was nothing new. Yeah, she's got uh, tough skin. <laughs> um, yeah. But she, she does... Uh, uh, ask tough questions. Uh, a lot of folks may not uh, approve of her style, uh, but she hasn't been without controversy and, you know, uh, associated with UH. Yeah, that is right. Um, other than what happened with the CV Wonder Blunder, um, there was a time when she was Senate president, she did question then um, it was UH President MRC Greenwood about why her son didn't get into um, the law school at the time. And then turns out her son never applied. Um, but from what I was told from some of her um, her friends, actually, or political friends, that, you know, she learned her lesson and moved on from it. Yeah. The question of whether she overstepped her bounds by uh, calling up Marcy mm-hmm. Greenwood. Um yeah, so at this point, though, uh, as far as uh, Donna Kim's bills that were maybe, as some say, targeting um, the University of Hawaii, what's the status on on, um, on the legislation there? All of them are dead for the session. Mm-hmm. I know the the last one, though, uh, that was a, kind of a, uh, made the headlines was the Mauna Kea uh, bill, uh, you know, her tough line of questioning about whether the University of Hawaii is managing the mountain properly. That one, um, I remember talking to Donna Kim about that bill and um, all of the amendments that she had. But, you know, well, for that one, that one's a little bit more complicated. It did pass out of her committee with a lot of amendments, and now it's up to um, Senator Donovan Dela Cruz to kind of see if there's going to be more amendments. We're kind of expecting it to make it to conference, and that could really make or break the bill. All right. Well, we'll see what happens, though, with this uh a letter of rebuke against uh, Donna Kim and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Cassie. Thank you. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. To read her full story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR Local Reporting comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation's Change Framework, providing a common set of data to drive collaboration, action, and resolution of critical challenges across the islands. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org slash change. Several well-known comedians have shared their reaction on social media after actor Will Smith slapped Chris Rock live on the air at Sunday night's Oscar ceremonies. Veteran stand-up comic Kathy Griffin tweeted, Now all we have to worry about uh, is who wants to be the next Will Smith in comedy clubs and theaters. The conversations Russell Subiona was curious if comedians in our state share that concern. Local funny man Tumua Tuine talked with us ahead of the start of his West Coast tour. I saw the video you posted on your Facebook page, If Chris Rock Was From Hawaii. I thought it was pretty funny. Oh, you can talk to me like that? You talk to me like that? Yeah. You talk to me? No, 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 no. I will fuck you, kid. No, no, no. No, you stay right there. No, meet me halfway. I got him. I got him. Uh, 100% accurate. That's for sure. I've seen that plenty of times. <laughs> <laughs> what What was your first reaction after you saw Will Smith slap Chris Rock? I thought it was fake at first, honestly, because, I don't know, the slap looked pretty fake, I guess, because it was the way the angle was, you mm-hmm. know. But then um, when I seen the unedited version of, 
Will Smith screaming and, and swearing, then I kind of knew it was real. And then when I figured out that it wasn't staged, and my second reaction was, I guess, shocked and kind of felt embarrassed for just both of them because uh, I never really seen that happen in terms of comedy and making a joke because, you know, comedy is comedy. And in my opinion, the joke wasn't even that bad, you know, but I can understand how Will Smith got offended, you know, and it's okay to get offended at a joke. But in my opinion, it's not okay to physically hurt someone on stage, especially on a big stage like that and a big platform, especially on live television, you know, but I give Chris Rock props because he handled that very well, you know, like a true, uh, showman true comedian and he actually i think he made a joke right out of it right after right and i can't wait to see what other jokes he has coming up in his next special right right i was like you i thought it was a bit at first i had to watch the unedited yeah because he uh will smith was laughing at first right right you look at the the video and then um five seconds later he starts walking up on stage (laughs) and slaps him right so uh, i i thought he was laughing at the joke but i guess yeah i don't know And, you know, for someone as high profile as Will Smith, you know, he's one of the biggest movie stars and influencers in the world to physically assault a veteran comedian like Chris Rock, who also has a big following in front of such a large audience on live TV. Do you think some people might take it as permission to get physical with a comedian that tells a joke they don't like? I hope not. I hope from here on out, people don't think like it's okay to do that, you know, especially at at shows. But I tell you what, though, like comedy clubs and, and theaters is also a great security. At my shows, I get some big solis, some big Samoan guys <laughs> as security guards. So uh, I feel like even if any audience members tried or attempted to like get on stage, I think they would have been stopped easily yeah. if it was at a club or or some comedy theater. But since it's Will Smith, you know, everyone's like, oh, is this part of the act? You know, so right. I feel like that's why. He was easily let on stage, but yeah, if that happened in 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 uh, another comedy club or another comedy venue with security, I feel like they wouldn't let that happen. Have you ever encountered a situation like that where an audience member felt offended by a joke that you might have said? Not really, no. I mean, I had some hecklers here and there, yeah. but um, a lot of it was just drunk people, just they wouldn't stop talking. But there's different ways to handle that. You know, as a comedian, we have a microphone, right? So that's power right there. When you have a microphone, you can right. talk over the audience. And, and usually the rest of the audience is on your side because they want to enjoy the show right. and they don't want someone ruining the show, you know? So there's certain ways to handle it or you just have to give that person some attention by talking to them and giving them some some spotlight mm-hmm. but i never had any any like really really bad hecklers and i never had anyone attack the stage but i don't know maybe my next show i gotta wear one one football helmet on stage <laughs> just to protect myself yeah um <laughs> and a mouthpiece <laughs> i know that some comedians like jerry seinfeld have talked about how much harder it is to be a comedian in the era of cancel culture and political correctness Some comedians won't even do shows on college campuses because of how sensitive the audience might be. Do you find it challenging to frame your comedy in a way that doesn't hurt anyone's feelings? Yes and no. For some comedians, I can see that. But myself, personally, I'm a clean comedian. So the topics I talk about are pretty, you know, not like taboo subjects or... I try to avoid like religion and politics just because those two things can really separate a crowd. Where are you guys from, this table? I'll say. Yeah. White Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so who gets 
What do you do for a living, Jill? You work for a boss. So how come you never carpool everybody? Depends what you talk about on stage, and depends what kind of comedian you are. For me, I'm a clean comic, so it's easy to just be neutral in anything that I do, and I do that on purpose just to make everyone happy because that's what I want people to do when they come to my show is just a time to escape reality and just enjoy the moment with each other and just laugh. But other comedians, I can see them getting a little hesitant about talking about these subjects they've talked about before in the past. If you look at Chris Rock, one of his old specials, I think, Bring the Pain, if you watch that special, that, that wouldn't be able to be aired today because of all right. the things he talked about, you know. So it's just it's just part of the game. It's part of adapting to the culture. And I think a lot of it is social media that's, that's changing the sensitivity of the audience members because there's cameras everywhere, there's phones everywhere. So you never know what's going to happen. You're always, like, walking on eggshells. But that's why a lot of comedy shows, even my shows as well, I make it prohibited to record anything or audio record anything at my show just because you never know what's going to happen so it definitely depends on the comedian and i can see some comics getting worried but it's all part of the game and you got to adapt to it and i know you're getting ready to start your tour this saturday in irvine california and you have dates on the continent booked out until june how does a comedy tour work do you get to come home in between dates or do you kind of just grind on the road the whole time no coming back and forth flying back and forth Working with Alaska Airlines, so shout out to Alaska Airlines, but uh, I'm not going to stay the whole three months. Yeah, this is just a, a good first year of feeling out the mainland. It's always something I always wanted to do, and I've been getting a lot of requests from Hawaii local people that live up there in the mainland, and I guess they miss the local comedy. So it'll be good to, to feel it out this year and just give them what they want. And speaking of kind of feeling it out, too, last week the mask mandate expires and now we're all trying to make an attempt at a post-pandemic life. Do you have any concerns about going on tour at this point in time? No, not not really. I'm actually, I think it's perfect timing. Like I said, you just got to adapt to what's happening right now. And I guess that's just more material for me and right. other comedians. But yeah, I'm excited to see that in the mainland because they're more wide open than us, I believe. I believe their mass mandate dropped way before Hawaii's one. It'll be cool to experience that up there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what your experience is like when you get back. When you're on the road, is it also an opportunity to write new material for future shows? Oh, yeah, it's an ongoing process. It's tough. I mean, it, your mind is always working. Your gears are always turning. Whenever I have an idea, I try to just put it on my phone first, and then I would test it out on stage at some of the smaller shows and fine-tune it there. But it's rough as a comedian because everything is changing, you know. New rules are happening. News is changing, too, right. just like the Oscars, you know. So I'm definitely going to have some experience up there while traveling. That's what you want as a comedian. You want to live through new experiences, you know, and situations so you can create material. All these trips will definitely help me, and hopefully I can find something funny out of it and... and some comedians take months to like a year to flip out a whole new hour of material. Just got to experience it and whatever funniness happens in your life, try to get that on paper to the stage. There's a different process to do it. It's definitely tough, but I'm up for it and I really enjoy it and, and I love this, you know. Do you have a dream gig? Is If you could perform anywhere with anyone, what would that look like? I try not to um, set goals way too in advance, but... Um, I guess the top dream gig would just get like a Netflix special, you know, yeah. 
But the goal is to tour every year and like all these venues I'm going to this year, hopefully uh, next year it's bigger venues and, mm-hmm. and more and more people come and then always, you know, closing out in my hometown on Oahu and just making the show bigger and bigger. So, yeah, I just take it one step at a time, one day at a time, keep working hard, keep giving the people what they want and hopefully just grow bigger and bigger. Right on. Thanks so much, Tumua. Of course, yeah. Thanks, right. Russell. That was local comedian Tumua Tuine talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Tuine begins his West Coast tour this Saturday in California. Check out our website later today. We'll have a link to more info on the conversation page of hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at WaikoloaBeachResort.com. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Ever wondered what people are bringing with them when they visit our islands? Any creepy crawlers hitchhiking of a ride? Any invasive fruit buried at the bottom of your suitcase? Well, if you do happen to bring along something harmful to our ecosystem, you can surrender it in one of the amnesty bins posted at airport exits. That's right. Just chuck your item in the bin. No questions asked. But does this honor system really work? The conversations Savannah Harriman Pote wanted to know. Today, we're revisiting her interview with Jonathan Ho, acting manager of the plant quarantine branch, about what ends up in those amnesty bins. There has been one instance of somebody who actually dropped a snake in it, a ball python. This was way in the 90s. So, I mean, it it does work. You would think that this box that looks like a trash can, there's no way anybody's going to ever throw anything in there. And we've had a snake dropped in in it. Ever since then, we have not received that type of a commodity, but um, we do get prohibited fruits and vegetables, pineapples, Florida citrus, radishes, uh, turnips, things like that. But generally, like live animals, most people don't bring them with them on planes because one, they can't. Most airlines won't allow things like snakes and lizards, things like that. And the advent of TSA has precluded people from bringing all these kinds of weird things on planes. Another thing about the amnesty bin, which makes them somewhat useful, unlike a person, is they're non-confrontational. You can put whatever you want in there, no questions asked, no one will ever know. And they also serve as a good reminder for people that Hawaii is different, kind of in conjunction with the ag farm. You know, you get on the plane, you see this ag farm, you're like, why do I have to fill this agriculture farm? And, you know, when you come in, you know, Hawaii is different. And the farm and then seeing this bin, it's like, wow, these guys are putting all these things in to try to protect what they have. And a lot of people, especially nowadays, are very cognizant of, you know, trying to maintain Hawaii as a, this tropical place free of you know, all these invasive things. And putting their apple, even if it's low risk, into the bin is their way of being part of the solution. Yeah, we get stuff in them daily. Like on Oahu, I think you were getting, you know, 60, 70 pounds every couple of days of stuff it's it's not like insignificant it's it's pretty hefty amounts of stuff what happens to the stuff if we can determine that it's free of pests we do have animals in our office that are you know confiscated so we can use them for animal feed um if not we we destroy the goods 
Yeah, we don't like eat them or anything like that. Yeah, no, it's a it, it's either animal feed or it's destroyed. So the invasive animals are getting the invasive plants to eat full cycle. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Animal importation is heavily regulated by our office, so we do get illegal animals through amnesty or you know through confiscations or investigations. One of the things that we want is we want people, regardless of how they got them, to give them up rather than let them go. And part of that entails not killing anything because you know people know that we're going to be euthanizing animals that they turn in. They're not going to give them up. They're just going, ah, I don't want this snake. I'm going to let it go. Or I don't want this lizard. I'm going to let it go. We'd rather them give it to us. But um, it, it does take a lot of time and money and effort and you know supplies to to maintain those animals having this free supply some of it we can use for some of the animals it, it is helpful i know that in 2017 the state enacted a 10-year biosecurity action plan mm-hmm. in light of that kind of wide-reaching highly considered strategy something like the amnesty bin almost feels a little bit quaint what do you think the role of this kind of honor system is in ensuring that Hawaii's borders are protected from different types of invasive species? The honor system, unfortunately, does leave a lot to be desired. But again, going back to it's always working regardless of whether you, you are or not. The objective of your office is very serious in terms of keeping Hawaii's ecosystem safe. And you are one of the first lines of defense Do you feel like your office has the resources it needs to successfully protect Hawaii's biosecurity? That's a very loaded question. Yes and no. The basic principles and techniques for quarantine and, you know, maintaining biosecurity exist. The issue is how much resources is anyone willing to really put in to achieve whatever the the expected level of protection is. One of the challenges for our office is somewhat of a dueling mandate with regards to, you know, we are mandated to protect agriculture and to protect the environment and to protect human health and animal health and safety. And, you know, agriculture, depending on the type of agriculture, doesn't necessarily jive completely with environmental protection. Uh, what's a good example? Tilapia for aquaculture. You know, the governor, you know, wants to produce food. Aquaculture and tilapia are viable industries that can potentially help achieve that goal, but they're also invasive. We are here to, you know, promote and to protect an agricultural industry that could be, if done wrong or, um, you know, somebody intentionally let them go, affect the environment. You know, if we went straight environmental protection, you're going to ban tilapia. And at that point, now you have all these people that are now economically out of business. The governor, you know, you cannot provide this type of food. And where that line is, is kind of always shifting. And it's one of those things where you're trying to manage all sides of the issue at the same time. And that's kind of what makes it real challenging. When you put it in those terms, I'm just thinking of of the scale of your objectives, truly. This is something that you have to actively chip away at every day. And I feel like we have equipped your office with a spoon to dig a channel. (laughs) We're like, here, have 
an amnesty bin, if there was a tool that would really make a dent in the work that you're doing, do you know what that would be? It's probably something that doesn't exist, but the regulatory structure that we're set up with, you know, all the framework, all the rules and all the regs were created in a time where e-commerce did not exist. 20 years ago, overnight stuff was too expensive or didn't occur. You had these boats or the speed of transportation has increased the ability for things to get places that it could never get before. And the internet in conjunction with that has given people the idea that, hey, I want this weird plant or this strange fish or whatever it may be that they would never have been able to know about before. That access to information and the speed of transportation is the biggest problem. And coming up with this like magic codex that had all of our regs and you could just upload it into everybody's e-commerce site, it would run it through this magical thing and poof, sorry, it, you can't ship it. And then you can use what little manpower you have for the things that need to be inspected, that need to be cleared and whatever, the, the known things, you know, because right now we're always trying to deal with the unknown. Uh, we have inspectors that go to FedEx and UPS on a daily basis to clear all the agricultural goods that come through. Each company guessing, you know, they're bringing in, you know, tens of thousands of parcels on a daily basis, in Honolulu at least, um, for FedEx. There's three people for all of Oahu on a daily basis, everything that's shipped through FedEx to make sure that there isn't people smuggling and then inspecting all the things that are actually known agricultural commodities. And, you know, when you have three people, we'll say 30,000 boxes, you're scanning 10,000 boxes and conducting an inspection in a three hour window. That's what you're dealing with. Then you deal with like Mother's Day, for example, cut flowers. Everyone has a mother and most people have more than one. And, you know, you have, you know, 1500 boxes of flowers on a daily basis in the Mother's Day every day. Each inspector's 1,500 boxes, 12 to 1,500 boxes of flowers. You're going through them, making sure that they're free of pests. So it's just a lot more work for us to deal with all of those particular shipments. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. That was the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote and Jonathan Ho, acting manager of the plant quarantine branch at the State Agriculture Department. Well, we are out of time today, but tomorrow we will be continuing our conversations with our mayors. Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi is to join us.